Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be going over HP CPR, uh, high performance CPR, with our medical director, Dr. Northheim. We have Chief Richardson here today from Soxie Fires, the EMS and Training Chief, and Chief Jim Davis, who's from uh, Fort Worth Fire Department. So, couple of good friends of mine and mentors over the last few years and so we're going to talk about uh, cardiac arrest today and some implementation that we've had and kind of want to get um, um, some opinions from uh, some local chiefs so we'll kind of we'll kind of start off with um, um, a little bit of uh, what brought us here today uh, many of us have been in the resuscitation academy in Seattle in fact we are now a lighthouse community for the resuscitation academy across best EMS and and really we learned a lot when we went to Seattle and um, basically learn that Seattle story is they have about 5,000 responders, 90% are BLS, and so um, no routine use of Lucas device, mechanical CPR devices. Typically, they're not transporting patients who um, do not have a pulse, um, so no transport unless they have a pulse. And then the amazing part is they have, in, in certain aspects of King County and Seattle, they have about 400-plus patrol vehicles on the police side with AEDs. And about 3% of Seattle's population is on PulsePoint, which is an app they, uh, that we use to notify about cardiac arrest. And across Seattle and King County, there's really only 27 ALS units. And so they do a lot of um, great work in their cardiac arrest um, patients, uh, for their cardiac arrest patients, um, really with BLS care. And so we know that if someone has a cardiac arrest at time zero, and if we really don't do anything for 10 minutes, they die. It's called the slope of death. And it's really an amazing uh, slope that goes from, you know, 100% chance of survivability down to zero just over 10 minutes. And so what we do during that time is really important for the patient. And so what we realize with going to the Resuscitation Academy is by the time we get there, it may be eight minutes, depending on your transport time. I'm sorry, depending on your response time. And so really dispatch plays a vital role. Um, citizens doing CPR, AD programs, police programs, um, really trying to get the call out fast, trying to get someone on the chest um, doing telephone CPR via dispatch prior to our arrival is really important. And then obviously as an EMS provider, when we get there, giving high performance CPR, tracking this and making sure we're doing great work. And so really there's only two things that have ever really been proven to save a life in cardiac arrest. It is shock and is uh, quality compressions. Uh, the rest of it we do, we, we do a little bit later now, but really that should be the focus and Seattle really tells us that story. It's really important to stay on the chest because it takes about 16 seconds or about 30 compressions to build um, your arterial pressure up high enough to perfuse the vital organs of the body. And as soon as you stop, you don't really roll down the hill, you kind of fall off the side of the Grand Canyon. And so every time we stop to pause, to look, to check a pulse, we literally fall off this cliff and then we have to restart and it takes another 30 compressions or 16 seconds to get up. We know that a very important high impact number is time to CPR within four minutes and that is probably not going to be us as fire departments or EMS responders. That's going to be a lay person. That's going to be dispatch, hopefully talking someone in to getting on the chest, maybe a police, police officer. And we also know another really important high impact number is AED in less than eight minutes. And so hopefully delivering that shot. That means we have to have AEDs located in, in vital places. Um, we have to have hopefully AEDs with our police officers. Uh, we have to have pulse point programs, uh, maybe with verified first responders with AEDs, but less than eight minutes is really tough for us to get a shock on. And so if you kind of look at um, some of the uh, uh, ATP, some of the science of this is every minute that goes by, your energy within your heart, your ATP, your energy within your body goes down. And that 
really nice looking shockable rhythm very quickly turns into flatline asystole and so we have a very small chance of getting these people that get in to a very fine VF or asystole for, for them to come out of a cardiac arrest. So it's really important getting someone on the chest, building the ATP back up so when the first responder gets there we've got a better chance of shocking this person. And what we've kind of learned from the CARES registry which is a cardiac arrest registry is really depending where you live, depending what agency services you, what town you live in, what kind of programs they have, really the disparity of the chances of you getting CPR prior to EMS slash fire arrival varies between like 6% and 81%, right? And so how can we as medical directors, how can we as chiefs, how can we as EMS professionals and um, city officials, how can we make um, our CPR delivery numbers higher? And that's through dispatch, that's through education. And so we've learned that through the CARES registry. And then if you look through... Um, basically across all rhythm survivability and, and we're looking at across the CARES registry, I mean, there's a, a 10 to 15 fold disparity of survivability. And why is that? What are we doing differently in one city versus another or one EMS program, fire department versus another? And so I think those are important things. Um, we all know that we have to get dispatch to get the calls out quickly so we can start to get in route. We all know it's really important to get telephone CPR going hopefully within the first four minutes, hopefully finding an AED, an AED place. And of course, when we get there as first responders, really giving quality compressions that we can track, um, that we can continuously improve on and become better. So really in 2019, when we went to the Resuscitation Academy, we were, we were pretty good at high-performance CPR. We stayed on scene. We worked the patient for 10 minutes. We didn't leave. That's really what we um, were great at. And then basically in 2019, we started focusing on some other things. The dispatch side, RQI, which is a program that helps our dispatchers become quicker and better at um, um, not only recognizing cardiac arrest, but giving telephone CPR instructions, hopefully having a metronome in the background, bringing the CARES registry on board, which many of our agencies and hospitals did not take part of when we came back, uh, CPR feedback with CodeStat or RescueNet, and then really trying to build our AED citizen CPR programs and our, our police programs. And then after we get a save, how do we market these? Do, you know, do we have the crew and their survivor come in? Do we have the telecommunicator come in? Do we really celebrate these wins and these saves um, to really make it kind of addictive that we, uh, it's, a, it's an addicting story that we have more saves and and I mean that's what we've seen really across the board uh, one of our biggest challenges is deployment of Lucas device they don't use a Lucas device in Seattle so how can we get this on quickly and so we really challenged when we came back and we were getting this thing on in less than six, uh, six seconds now so we're really focusing on Lucas device deployment a little bit later in the code at a rhythm check and definitely in less than 10 seconds. And then we really focused in 2021 on the Resuscitation Academy is coming back and making sure we had 100% CPR feedback so the crews could really see how they did on the code. They can see every compression. They could see their, their um, time on the chest. They can see their compression rates. And I think this is vital for the crew practicing getting better and making sure that they're providing high quality compressions. We really fine-tuned the high-performance side, and then we came back with a lot of um, ideas such as our CPR checklist. So our checklist will show our pit crew, will show what each person is supposed to do. And much like a pilot, you know, checklist is important to make sure we're getting everything done. Is the oxygen hooked up? Do we have suction? Do we have capnography? Do we have the metronome? All these things are important. And then our biggest challenges were, well, how are we going to treat the trauma rest patient, right? And, and our focus used to be on compressions and ACLS drugs. Now we're really focusing on um, you know, finger thoracostomies, needle decompressions, pericardial synthesis, volume, airway, 
all of those items before we're even thinking about ACLS drugs and um, getting on the chest. So, Chief Richardson, you've been, um, I think, vital to our program with Invest EMS and really Saxy Fire. And, and I think that the biggest things that you've helped um, us with are really the code stat piece. Uh, CPR feedback and really been a big proponent of uh, the CARES registry and I know Saxe is a heart safe community as well which is uh, really uh, to be celebrated I think for for your citizens so um, maybe just kind of give me some of your feedback on on rolling out code stat at Saxe why it's important and what kind of um, reaction you see from the crews when they're able to see their compressions time on the chest. Well I think the big thing is is that now we as a system and we as a department have got ourselves in a position where we expect ROSC. We expect to get those patients back and they walk out of the hospital. And when they don't, we kind of feel deflated, you know. Um, I think that the use of um, the CARES data as well as the use of CodeStat, and we implemented what we call a PIA, just like we do after a fire, a post-incident analysis, where we use the feedback from CodeStat and we talk about it amongst the people that were there um, in an effort to see if there's anything we can do better um, for the next time. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's vital for everybody to understand that this is a system. It's not just dispatch. It's not just the providers. It, it's a true system. And when we implement a system, everything gets better. So looking at the heart safe community stuff, one of the things that I hope to have accomplished in our department before our next renewal is we're going to up the game on AED placement. Not only are we going to have them in the police cars, but I'm going to put them in the parks department cars. I'm going to put them in the public works cars, have those verified responders. And then I'm even thinking about having an AED as a um, piece of equipment that's given to every new employee with their bunker gear so that they have them in their own vehicles when they're out on their own. And then you get notified with Pulse Point or Good Sam or whatever um, app that we use. And we've just multiplied the amount of uh, first responders and AEDs um, in, in pretty much every community. Right. And that's something Seattle did a few years ago was they actually um, had a grant where they purchased AEDs for the, the people that lived within King County or lived within Seattle that were first responders from the department. So hooked into the Pulse Point, they were notified if they were cutting their grass. And they have several true great stories where, you know, they went, they were they were half a mile away from um, someone having cardiac arrest that they never would have known. They showed up, they knocked on the door and they provided care and they had an AED with them. So that is uh, that's truly a great story. So we appreciate all your help with this and across Best and across Saxe. So Chief Davis, I, you spoke at our last two resuscitation academies. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you came from prior to Fort Worth and, and why the RA is important to you and um, some of your experiences there um, prior to coming here. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, asking to be here. I, I really do appreciate the opportunity, and I, and I really appreciate our relationship. And um, so I, I've been here for four and a half years now, and I uh, came from Columbus, Ohio. I was a firefighter and a paramedic there for over 30 years. And uh, during my time there, I got to know um, a guy named Mike Sayre, who's Seattle's medical director, and he was an attending at Ohio State University, and he uh, led a committee that we had in the fire department on, re on uh, research. And so we got to know each other really well. And so when he went to um, Seattle, I had the opportunity to go out to the Resuscitation Academy. That's how I ended up out there because I had a contact out there. So we, uh, 
we went out there, we sent several people out over the course of uh, a couple years, and then we started coming back and, and started looking at how we could take the system, to your point about the system in Columbus, and try to, it, it's quite, a, it's very much a regional mutual aid automatic response driven system there. So it was more than just the city, but it was a regional approach that, that occurred out there, um, trying to drive the, the idea of um, you know, driving the basics home before looking at the advanced um, care, um, not necessarily moving away from advanced care, but making sure that um, we recognize first and foremost who needed CPR um, through the telecommunication conversation. And we, we found some really interesting things there because what we started doing, to your post-incident analysis comment, we started at the very beginning, we're listening to the call not just critiquing the call taker's approach to it, but listening to what the caller said and how they answered that, those questions that were done through the priority uh, dispatch protocols. And we started finding things like, um, you know, people were saying, you know, the, to the answer to the question, are, the, are they breathing? Well, yes, they're breathing. Well, then we would get there and they'd be in VFib cardiac arrest. And then we started doing a research and having internal conversations about dying, gasping, agonal breathing. Breathing is something people want to see in a loved one. Yes, they're breathing. That's a good sign, right? They don't want to, they don't understand that. Plenty of research out there about people being unable to feel a pulse. So when they were being asked the question, do they have a pulse? They were saying yes. And then when we were getting there and we were not getting CPR started in, in only 40% of cases. So we, we worked on a research project, changed a little bit of the conversation to are they breathing or not? If they are, tell me when they took a breath, tell me when they take the next breath. And if it was more than six seconds, we were just starting CPR because there's plenty of evidence out there that bad things occur if you don't do CPR, but there's not a whole lot of evidence out there anymore. You know, back in the day when we first started learning CPR, it was like, you know, this, this could kill people and you lacerate livers and do all kinds of bad things. Fracture ribs and cause pneumothoraxes and none of that's turning out to be the case anymore. So it's more important to get it started even when maybe it's not needed than miss somebody that's needing it. So we did all that and over a period of a year we drove it up to 72% just just with that small change. So th those were, you know, those are some stuff that just the research is is good, the research is uh, needed and participating in the research to drive um, the conversation instead of just waiting until the research is published and responding to it is something that I'm real interested in. So you said something interesting at the last Resuscitation Academy, and I wish I would have <coughs> recorded at the time. Um, so talk to me about a couple decades ago when we focused on fire and we did such a great job at preventing fire now through sprinklers and fire extinguishers and uh, quality of inspections and all this great stuff. And kind of what's our next step? Should healthcare be part of that decision? And I, th I think you talked a little bit about why don't we have fire extinguishers right next to ADs, right? And and we wouldn't probably go into a commercial building and expect it not to have sprinklers or a fire extinguisher within reach. And yet we still go into public buildings with with high-risk patients and still don't have AEDs, right? So, I mean, that that was amazing to me. If you can kind of hit on that and your thoughts, your thoughts on that. Obviously, the fire side is very important. My uncle's a fire chief. I, I, I love riding in a fire truck. Uh, I, I love 
the whole aspect of fire and the science behind it. Um, but I do think that there's, there's a lot of agencies that are still very much stuck on a lot of resources for fire, not as many resources on healthcare when it's a majority of what most of our agents, all of our agencies do, uh, I would say. So maybe you can speak on that because I know you have a pretty strong opinion on it. Yeah, I do. I appreciate you asking. You know, the, the idea that the, the fire service is uh, rich in tradition is, is true. And a lot of times that tradition is a barrier to change. I, I get all that. However, the fire service, and I'm going to be very clear about this, has been the victim of its own success. You know, and there is not a more adaptive organization in the world than the fire service because at any given time, the 911 call happens, and the next thing you know, they're having to deal with the next what if. You know, is it a hazmat incident today? It's Tesla and the, the uh, vehicle fires and all the battery issues that we're seeing across the country. My point on that is being the victim of our own success, and that is America burning back in the 70s and 80s, we ended up... Uh, working as a community, a fire service community nationwide to drive prevention, and education, better building standards. And over the course of 30, 40 years, we have seen the significance of f fires involving fatalities, fires involving mass loss of property decrease to the point that every city leader across the country is now using that as a platform for underfunding or not advancing in their communities the fire service because of the success. So instead of celebrating that success, it's now being used against the fire service as the fire service looks to transition into the next what if in a community. EMS is 70, 80 plus percent of everything that the fire service does, whether or not you're a first response agency at the BLS or ALS level like Fort Worth, or whether or not you're a transporting agency um, in the fire service like I, we were in Columbus. The point is, is that better building standards, fire prevention codes put things in place, sprinkler systems, uh, fire extinguishers required in certain venue or certain places and venues. Why today we don't have that same mindset, that same conversation where EMS is concerned, where cardiac arrest is concerned, where trauma care is concerned? Um, that that needs to happen now. AEDs need to be as visible in buildings as fire extinguishers are. They need to be in places and required in places where people's heart rates are elevated, where mass people gather, where the elderly congregate, and places like sporting events. We learned last night we had, a, obviously, an event at the football game, the NFL football game, Monday Night Football. Um, so praying for their families and, and for that gentleman today, but how important was it to have crew members there that were trained in, in delivering cardiac arrest, staying on scene. Um, obviously, a lot of pressure on the crew and the medical staff to take care of that patient, but obviously a very important piece. So I think that when you present all this information, I think that um, you, you can certainly develop a lot of these programs quickly. I think it's difficult. So what would you guys say is cheese or kind of the, if, if you had to have the, as the RA says, the low-hanging fruit, what are the what's the low-hanging fruit that if you had something that, you could change today and that would have the highest impact, what would be a couple of those low-hanging fruits that don't necessarily cost a ton of money that you could implement today and then obviously develop into other things? What, what are some kind of hot items that you as chiefs would say, hey, yeah, that's pretty easy to do. We could, we could start here, right? 
I think the, one of the biggest things would be to um, increase the amount of public CPR classes, hands-only CPR classes that we provide. Um, if you look at Seattle, they say that essentially every third person you pass on the street knows CPR. I think we're a long ways from that in Texas. And I think they also talk about anybody that comes to work for the city of Seattle, part of the orientation is CPR training. I mean, that, that sounds like a great idea to me. I think EMS at the national level needs to partner with it, it provided that last night turns into a positive ending, right? And we still don't know what the outcome's going to be. But we know three things happened last night. That there was witnessed arrest, that there was people on the scene very quickly, that there was CPR initiated very early, and that there was an AED used or some form of defibrillator was used. That's the whole basis of the Resuscitation Academy concept, correct? Right. So how we take, if this turns into a good save, to talk to the Chief's point here, how we maximize and leverage that positive experience that a, a lot of people in the community witnessed and how we, f we don't let that really bad thing that potentially turns into a good save, as we call it, um, go without being talked about, publicized, capitalized, capitalized on, and, and how we don't, um, you know, another thing that, that I think we can do better at is that EMS Week every year is turned into a appreciation event for EMS providers, which is important, don't get me wrong. But we also need to maximize that as the conversation in the community about things like bleeding control, CPR, AED use, and make the conversation and use that week, just like we use Fire Prevention Week, to drive the message of fire safety education and school uh, fire drills and home safety plans. Well, we, home safety plans today f should include what we're going to do if something happens to mom or dad or to one of our kids. And I would say, too, the, the, the biggest take-home for me from the RA was what is truly happening as I'm responding to that cardiac arrest, right? And so bringing your dispatch center and bringing your telecommunicators in, um, we've had a lot of talk about them being first responders, right? Many times they are not certain of the outcome after, after they hang up the phone, right? And so giving them an outcome, giving them, making them part of the you know, I would say marketing of the save and the appreciation of the save and giving them feedback is important. But to know that some telecommunicators and dispatch centers aren't really focusing on telephone CPR. Um, they're not really recognizing it. Some are still doing mouth-to-mouth -mouth on, on cardiac arrest, right? And we know that as a layperson, especially with COVID just happening, a lot of people are probably going to be reluctant to start you know, breathing in someone's mouth, right? I think a lot of us were reluctant before COVID. Now, especially with COVID happening in the pandemic, I think more and more people are, are reluctant to do that. So I would say that, that really focus on your dispatch center too. Make sure that, you know, they're kind of up to the, the most recent standards. How quickly are they getting the call out? How, what's the percentage of time that they're actually getting someone on the chest? And I would say most of ours now are up in the 75, 80% range. And then a lot of our telecommunicators are actually have a metronome in the background. So if you're a layperson doing compressions and you hear a metronome in the background, now we're delivering compressions at 100 to 120, which we know, per the science from years ago, is very important, right? And so 
Um, I think Intech, which is one of our dispatch entities, they're up in the 82, 83% of the time. They have a metronome and they're actually having lay people give compressions at 1 to 120, which is exactly what we do when we get there. So to me, if I'm responding for six minutes, eight minutes, 10 minutes, knowing that my telecommunicators are on top of it or part of our QI or really recognizing these things and giving compressions, I feel better that my chances when we get there are going to be a lot higher for these patients, especially depending on your response patterns. So if I can tag on to that, two things. One is that there is another opportunity for public education, right? Because it's an emotional response, for, generally speaking, for who's ever calling 911. And all they want is... They don't want to answer a bunch of questions. They want help on the way, and they, right? So we have to teach people today that what that call is going to entail. We're going to push you. We're going to encourage you. This isn't a time for us to be nice and sweet on the phone. This is a time for us to be direct and forceful with you to get this started. Secondly, is then you got to give the telecommunicator the opportunity to get up and take a break after that call because that's a very emotional call that may, in some cases, go on for 10 plus minutes before help arrives. And in some cases, probably closer to 20 or 30, especially in outlying areas. Then the next thing that happens is they hang up that phone, not knowing what's going on now. And then the phone rings right back and they're dealing with somebody that wants to know, you know, what time the fireworks start tonight. It's, it's, it's an emotionally exhausting situation for the call taker as well. And we cannot fail to recognize that. And I would argue that the telecommunicators is probably the most important link in the entire system because if they don't recognize it they don't get the right people going and they don't get people on the chest fast enough then that slope of death doesn't get derailed oh, exactly i mean we have to do anything we can to really stop that slope and to really start to bend it so our survivability goes up so i'm going to bring in jeff um jeff is one of our supervisors here critical care paramedic and um when Best EMS joined with Parker County Hospital District, we really focused on high-performance CPR. And their county is over 900 square miles. They have uh, they do all the transports for the county, but um, they really have a bunch of first responding entities. And we have large first responding entities like Weatherford Fire, Parker County SD1, and we have some small ones too. We have some small ones where we may get one or two people on an engine that show up and, and that are EMTs that, that start delivering care. So. I think it was very impressive that I think over a period of six to seven weeks, not only everyone within the hospital district went through high performance CPR, but really every first responding entity within the fire service went through high performance CPR. So they, they have been um, integrated into our airway. They've been integrated into our um, IO access, right? And a lot of them are EMTs. And so can you talk about that? And, and it, is, it was a daunting task. It was something that obviously I put a lot of pressure on you all to do. It took a lot of time, a lot of effort. But I think through that process, um, our patients are, are experiencing better care. Our code stats have really improved. And, and I think overall, our relationships with our first responders, um, I mean, we're, we're having you know dinners with our first responders now. We're showing up to calls on first name basis. That's something that's really changed in the hospital district. Absolutely. So first of all, uh, we have an awesome team of supervisors and FTOs here that, that all really pitched in. Um, we have we have response vehicles that we've used to go out to fire departments and uh, you know first responding agencies and help train. Um, we did kind of a train the trainer situation where you came in and taught all of us. You know we we went through it for about a week and then we started going out into the community, uh, working with our ESDs, Weatherford Fire, and 
I was really amazed how many how much buy-in there was. I mean, it's it's cliche to say we all got into this business to help people, but in one aspect or another, we all got into this business to help people. And so when we started, you know, saying, "Hey, we're going to be improving how we do CPR. We're going to be working together." You know, this really has showing people the science behind it, like you've been talking about, was from Seattle. People see that they get excited, and when people get excited, they really they learn better. And it's it's been amazing to watch. I've I've been here for uh, for years now, and over the last six months, watching the, the the paradigm shift. Where now I show up on a call, and any first responder, I can literally just throw them an eye gel, and I, I can throw them an eye gel, and they're like they know exactly what to do with it. Versus you know a few years back, you know depending on who obviously. There's always those people that were enthusiastic, and you know you didn't have to worry about those people. But uh, everybody's got buy-in now. Like every single every single person on every engine, every ambulance, everybody's bought into this HPCPR thing, and we all know where we where we fit in. Um, I worked at cardiac arrest uh, last shift, and the the access to the patient was very limited, um, and basically. We all just found our roles, and it didn't fit the the perfect model. But we all knew what roles needed to happen, and it it worked out really well. Hey, don't you think that extends over to every call, right? I mean, it's really not. Just, it's just like the telecommunicators too. If they're really great at recognizing a cardiac arrest and taking care of people on those calls, they're going to be great at all the high acuity calls. And I really feel feel like whether it's a trauma, whether it's you know just a, a normal everyday chest pain call that. Together, our team has become stronger uh, because we're all kind of on the same page. We all understand our role. And, and to me, the heartache was having first responding units come and not do anything, not want to do anything, really not understand their place, um, you know, maybe not feel like part of the care team. And for me, I mean, if you're sending, obviously, a very expensive fire engine with a full crew and we're going lights and sirens to show up, I mean, we're going to integrate you. We're going to put you to work. And and, and I, I think that's been huge. I think that's really changed on all calls for us. Absolutely. Um, you were talking about dispatch earlier. One thing that we have the benefit of is our dispatch center is tied in with our, our main station. So it's actually not too far away from the kitchen kitchen table. And so when we come back from these cardiac arrest calls, we actually go into dispatch the, the dispatch center and say, hey, you know, this person didn't make it. Or, hey, um, family was doing CPR when we got there. We got a pulse back fairly quickly. You know, awesome job. And it's, it's really important. I've seen the importance of it. They always want to know. The dispatchers want to know what's going on. They, they were emotionally invested in that for sometimes 20 to 30 minutes, depending on how far out in the county, you know, we, we're going. Uh, they're emotionally invested. They want to know the outcomes. And they, that's also how we improve. You know, if, if it's like, hey, you know, this is, this is actually what was happening. A lot of times, you know, it's either, hey, this person was in cardiac arrest, great job, or, hey, this person actually, you know, wasn't doing cardiac or wasn't in cardiac arrest. Um, a lot of times that's more like when families or bystanders weren't willing to answer the questions like you guys were talking about earlier. You know, they're, they're like, well, we don't answer all these questions right now. Just get somebody here. Click. They don't go through the dispatch um, questions. They don't. They don't answer questions. Um, so one thing that has just been kind of focused on for us is the uh, the Lucas placement. I wanted to touch on that real quick. Uh, we did steal one of Chief Davis' techniques with the sharpie, so we'll give him credit I, for that. I like the sharpie technique. I used it last shift. That was that was good. Uh, so can I comment on that real quick? Yeah, before absolutely. You get into your point. I, I I think the the point there is that we were taught very early. First of all, in, in, in our environment, we're the only ones in healthcare 
that are resuscitating somebody during the course of moving them from their man cave in the basement or from the bathroom upstairs in the limited place like you were talking the other day. Nobody else in healthcare really does that during a resuscitation. But yet we were taught very early that if you're going to put a tube in somebody and you're going to move them, the first thing you do is you check the placement of that tube after you're done moving them. Well, the same concept has to happen with a mechanical CPR device. Because as a fire chief of the city of Fort Worth, I support the idea that it's that mechanical CPR devices have a place in the transport of people so people aren't standing up in the back of a moving ambulance during transport. I do believe that there is a safety factor that we can have a conversation, whatever the science says, about outcome versus mechanical versus manual CPR. Whole different conversation from a health and wellness standpoint in my organization. But you got to check the placement of it. The Sharpie is just an idea that makes makes things very visual. Yeah, so just so listeners understand, once we place the Lucas and we know it's in a good position, Chief Davis's idea, which they've been using, is actually placing a Sharpie marker circle around the puck. And so it's very easy to see whether or not it's migrated up, migrated down, making sure we're using the neck strap to keep it in place. But very easy to tell because if it is migrating, we're down over the xiphoid or the belly button. Obviously, that's that's you know not helping the patient. So we, we have done that. Absolutely. Um, so just talking about the Lucas placement, minimizing how long it takes us to put it on, uh, that was actually probably the hardest thing to convince everybody of is that, hey, we need to spend, and here, here what we do is we have two cycles where we do hands only. We don't put the Lucas on within the first two cycles of CPR because the science has shown as good as a Lucas is, it actually can hurt outcomes because you get on scene and nobody actually wants to do the, the, the physical part of CPR, so we're trying to put the Lucas on before we've built up that perfusion pressure. Uh, so once we educated everybody on, hey, we're actually hurting people if we get this Lucas on too quickly, if we don't have all the hands, we recommend four people to do it. You know, If we don't have all the hands there to do this, we're actually causing harm to our patients. As soon as people understood that, the, the pushback we got was gone. It was like, okay, we understand. We need all the hands here. We need to build up that perfusion pressure. And then once we're ready, then, you know, we've defibrillated if we need to. We do that fast technique, which is actually in the intro to the podcast now. We actually have practiced that more than almost anything. And we've gotten to the point where we're consistently, even in this tight space we were in last shift, uh, easily under 10 seconds. I mean, it was... It was. It takes practice, right? And so now we it have does. to prevent the decay, so we have to continue to train. So that's kind of the second piece of this is not only just the initial training, but continue to train after that to prevent the decay. So that goes all back to your buy-in, yeah. right? Because that was a hard pill to swallow for some guys. It also goes back to the code stat, right? So we can look at it now and say, ooh, it took four, there's a 14-second pause. It probably took too long. Now we got to get back and let's get the Lucas out and let's practice this, right? But without that feedback from the code stat, um, it's, it's really hard to tell. We could have a code that's, man, that went really good. High five, everybody. And we look at the code stat and it's like, ooh, we could have improved this pause and this pause. And then we look at another one that may not have felt so great. And we look at it and we're like, wow, we did great. You know, nothing over 10 seconds. Um, we, we had a great, you know, pre- and post-shock pause. It's been terrific. So, um, yeah, I think the code stat is, is huge for that as well, and, and it will prove to our agencies and to our crews that we're either doing this on a consistent basis, getting it on quickly, or we're not, right? Um, so I think that's important. So, Doc, let me ask you a question. Are you, through your code stats um, assessment and your, your pause or your reduction in pause time, are you, are you seeing a fluctuation with, uh, wave, with capnography numbers during the course of 
what you're saying when there's a delay of more than 10 seconds absolutely. and stuff like that. What, what are you seeing there? Absolutely. And so yeah. it's, a, it's another visual indicator no, absolutely. Of, of the reduction that you're talking about in, in pressures. Absolutely. And, you know, initially when you have an ambulance show up and you have two medics on it and, and, and if the fire crews are not really bought in with the process, they don't, maybe they've never thrown a capno, uh, capno on, right? Maybe they understand how there's an eye gel down. Initially, we need to throw a capnography. So the buy from the fire department say, hey, you guys forgot your capnography here. Hey, here's a checklist. I want you to go down everything and make sure we've hit everything. Now we're hitting everything, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, our capnos are, are consistently higher than they were in the past. Um, but I would say on average we're getting it on in less than six seconds, which is great. But we're only doing it during a rhythm check. We're not going to interrupt part of that. And we have agencies waiting 10 minutes. We have some agencies waiting till they transport. We have some agencies doing it earlier. My important part is let's do it during a rhythm check and get it on quickly and not, and not interrupt it. So Speaking of interruptions, one thing that you guys do for us is you send out a, you know, we, we get the, the review. Like, hey, this is, this is all your, I know you do that for all your agencies. Mm -hmm. We get the review, we look at it, and one thing I've seen looking at them over the last six months is initially we were interrupting CPR so many times just to take a look. Like, oh, well, maybe they actually had a pulse and we just didn't feel it. Let's check it, like 60 seconds. Like, there would be so many interruptions. And I looked at one a week ago, and it looked like a stair step. It was literally like two minutes, just perfectly. And it was, it was, it was really neat because, I mean, I think we've probably cut, on some cases, interruptions in half. Um, because we're not just taking a look anymore. We're actually setting timers. We're doing two minutes. Um, and the clock's important. I think one of the first things we lose track of is time during cardiac arrest, right? It may seem like it's been longer, it's been shorter. Our epi timing, our medication timing, our, our, our rhythm check timing. So having a clock, having somebody just, you know, one of the firefighters, just one of the officers, hey, just can you be the timer for us, right? Just let us know when it's been in two minutes and give us, you know, 15-second warning so we can pre-charge and stuff like that. I think it's been huge just to integrate them into our system. Well, and another thing is, you know, we need to be pushing instead of pulse checks looking at end title. Mm -hmm. If there's not a significant change in your end title, there's zero reason to check a pulse. What do you think the future is? I'll ask you this. Future of cardiac of, arrest of care? Cardiac arrest resuscitation in the pre-hospital setting. What do you think the future is? And I'm not, and, and I'll, I'll tell you where, I, today, I got this yesterday. This is an order ring, right? Came in the mail I set it up yesterday. This morning, I wake up. It's telling me my heart rate. I can get my, I can get an EKG off of it. It's telling me what my pulse ox is. At what point is my smartphone not an AED? I mean, at what point are drone AEDs flying around Parker County? Yeah, no, I think I think if you want to get AEDs out quickly within the eight minute time frame, I think that the drone piece is huge. Alliance has approached us because they have a whole automation area up there at Alliance, and and they want to play with it. And I'm like, all right. Yeah, yeah I think I mean, I, there's there's definitely some companies out there on the fire side where it's it's launching from the fire station, heading over the scene before the battalion chief even gets there, doing a 360, giving the scene size up so they can cancel units. Um, you know, once it hovers overhead and the battery's getting low, it flies back, the next one comes back. I mean, I, I think that's the future as far as AEDs. I, I saw one the other day for high-rise firefighting. They hooked, they hooked a hose up to it. Oh, yeah. It flew up right to the window of a 20-story building. Yep. I mean, I just think that that is our future for a lot of this I think stuff. ECMO probably has a piece as well. Um, Chief just had a great case where they had a STEMI that... 
went into VFib and ended up going to a local hospital and was placed on ECMO. We had another agency that transported a patient directly for ECMO. I think the challenge with ECMO is making that decision to go to an ECMO facility from the scene. Uh, I think we are so used to as crews staying on scene, staying there for 10 minutes, right? So making that quick decision and then really trying to get to an ECMO facility within the 45 to 60 minutes after someone goes down, I think it's challenging. And someone has to kind of say, wow, this is the perfect case, or hey, we're transporting, right? And this patient coded, hey, let's divert and go to an ECMO facility. But I think that's an interesting piece as well. I think that may play into the future a little bit more than it does now. But yeah, the drone ADs is, I mean, in city of Fort Worth, not having to have an AD in every building and the cost of that, but having a drone launch from your fire station dispatch area. Every, everybody has smartphones <coughs> now, though. I mean, like, I think that a smartphone that calls 911 for you and, you know, has like an audible metronome and start CPR. Like, iPhone right. 14 has got crash detection in it. Yeah. I you mean, know, you heard well, I mean if this recognizes an arrhythmia in calling, right? I mean, your Apple Watch is, is a huge piece, I think. Uh, it's been very helpful in the emergency department. People say, wow, I had some palpitations. Okay, how high did your heart rate get up? Oh, it only went up to 105. Okay. If you're at home by yourself, I mean, we had some technology in our watch to recognize you going into V-fib or dropping your blood pressure or doing something like that. I mean, that, that could save some lives as well. So I, mean, I, think, I think the technology and the smartphone and, and watches are going to be a big player as well. It's always, the, it's always the cases where it was unwitnessed that they don't survive. Right. You know, so, if, I mean, eventually technology is going to make it so there is no such thing as an unwitnessed. It's just, you know, it's like, hey, it took us two minutes to get there after their, after their, after their phone went off. You but know? then again, which populations does that affect, right? True. I mean, the elderly populations, the highest risk, they, they may not have the smartwatches. So that'll be interesting, too, to see if there be other, you know, um, marketed type programs where, you know, just like, hey, I've fallen, I can't get up, it's yeah. going to call, right? Is there going to be a monitoring device that the elderly could wear? That'll the, just be for the medical reasons. Yeah, right? the necklace medical arm turns into, actually, it's a smartwatch now. Right. So, it has an EKG with it. I think that's the way it's going. All right, well, thank you all for coming. Appreciate uh, mentorship and friendship and appreciate you being pro-EMS and um, pro-cardiac arrest care. And hopefully um, we can do this again soon. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you guys very much. This has been an episode of the PCHD EMS Podcast. Thank you for joining us.